Please, once more, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Our focus this morning will be verses 1 to 5, but we will be reading through to verse 10. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Lord, now as we come to the preaching of your word, like John the Baptist, I pray that I as the preacher decrease and you, Christ our Lord, would increase before our eyes, Lord. May you help us, be with us to behold your beauty, your glory, your majesty. May our hearts be drawn towards you, Lord, as we consider these words from the opening of Galatians. Lord, may you help us, Lord, to receive that which you would have us here this morning. Be with us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we live in a world that is confused about authority. In our modern culture, we have many voices speaking many opinions and many ideas and through media and all the various outlets that we have today we are constantly bombarded with view after view, opinion after opinion and we enter into a headache inducing mixing pot of thought and idea. Many simply don't know who to trust, what to believe, where do we get sound information from? And others react to all of this confusion by dismissing all authority and they become a law unto themselves. Yet in God's word we see the reality that God has in fact ordained that there be authority structures within our world. In our government, for example, we have leaders, we have judges. In our church, we have elders and we have deacons. 
And in our family, we have fathers and we have mothers. And we see it in all fields of life, don't we? As we face the reality that we, as limited, finite beings, as men and women in this world, cannot know everything about everything. And so, as a community of God's people here on God's earth, we must guide, but we also must be guided by one another in various aspects of life. And the reality with that is this, my friends, that as a community, not everyone will have the things their own way. Nor can everyone discern what is right in every single area of life by themselves. We must rely on others. Now, particularly in the West, in our uh, culture here, we function often in society from what we might call vested authority. Vested authority is an authority that is granted or bestowed upon another as a recognition of skill, one's education or experience in a field. For example, if I come to you today and I start telling you what I think might be clinically wrong with you, but I say, don't worry, I think we can fix this by some sort of surgery, you'd run a mile away from me because you recognize in myself that that I have no credential, no authority to be speaking such matters over you in regards to your health or your well-being. However, if a certified doctor perhaps would suggest the same thing to you, your reaction might be a little different. You might be more willing to listen. Or another example, if I turned up, say, in a library, and I walked in and I looked at all the books on the shelves, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't particularly like the Dewey Decimal System that orders the books on the shelves. I think I have a better way, a better system. And I start taking the books down off the shelf and then start reordering them and putting them to my own fancy and taste. I'm quickly going to be escorted out of that library because I have no authority within that vicinity, within that building to make such a decision as to reorder the books. And so authority matters. And Paul, in our reading here, and the beginning of the letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul is having to back up his credentials. He is having to restate his apostleship to them. And the sum of it is this, that Paul's apostleship is given to him. The authority that he has speaking over these churches in Galatia is an authority that has been given him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not an authority bestowed upon him by mere men, but it is an authority from God and the Lord Jesus. And so he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If we were to read through the whole book of Galatians, we would detect in a number of places that Paul 
is being met with some opposition. There is some false teaching going on in the churches of Galatia that is either undermining or contradicting the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the churches of Galatia. And so it seems that Paul in these opening verses is re-establishing his authority as there will be those who receive this letter and in order to disparage it, in order to reject its contents, might be saying to themselves and to the congregation, yeah, says who? Who's this Paul to be telling us that we're wrong and that he's right? And so preempting that, Paul is here reasserting whose authority he is speaking on, lest he be merely treated as another guy with another opinion that be shrugged off. So, on whose authority is our first heading? And we're looking at verse 1. Paul begins the letter, as he does all of his other letters, by introducing himself as the author of the letter, Paul, an apostle. The title of apostle given to the twelve in the Gospels and later on to Paul is a unique position that is given by Christ that they might establish and build up the fledgling church in that day. But in a more general sense, an apostle is one who is sent uh, as a messenger or as a delegate. And so to hear the phrase, Paul, an apostle, might raise the following question, of who? Who sent you? You're an apostle of who? And so Paul, in answering this rhetorical question, says, An apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in Paul's letters, he's a little more easy about how he establishes who he is. Many of his other letters, he's content just to say, Paul, an apostle. By the will of God. And he leaves it there and goes on into the rest of the letter. But here, because of the issues that are going on here, because of the context that this letter is going into, Paul here, he goes out of his way to really reinforce where his apostleship apostleship lies. Not from men, nor through man. Now the words from and through here are making unique statements. They're not merely a repetition of one another with the same point. So when Paul says, not from men, here he is saying that in no way did his position of apostle come from men. Men neither commended him nor appointed him. Paul is not an apostle because perhaps Peter, John or James in Jerusalem said it was so. These three certainly were authorities within the church. We see it in in Galatians itself in chapter 2 verse 9 that Paul reinforces, yes, these these three authority figures, these pillars of the church, they did give me right hand of fellowship, me and Barnabas, to, to be on our way and take the gospel to the Gentiles. So they were important. But Paul is not an apostle just because these three men said so. And the reality is where multiple leaders exist, fallen man will tend to be drawn to one 
rather than the other. Men will have the propensity to create factions amongst themselves. And they will cause division over their perceived favourite. Just think of the church in Corinth, for example, where Paul in that letter was dealing with factions, where some would say, I follow Peter. Others would say, well, I follow Apollos. And there were those who would say, well, I follow Christ. As if Peter, Apollos and Christ were somehow divided in their goal and aim. Of course they are not. But fallen men love to stand behind an individual. To justify their own cause. And so if Paul was made an apostle by just mere men saying so. Well then all the people receiving this letter would have to do is point to another authority figure. Say, look, this guy here, he says we should be circumcised. And so they could just fob Paul off. Doesn't this happen in all fields of our world today? It happens too in regard to God's word. Perhaps we do it ourselves. If we don't like what we hear... Rather than studying the scriptures to seeing if what we've heard is true and is in accordance with God's word. How easy it would be for us just to scour around instead for a teacher who says what we do like to hear and what we want to hear. And in that way many amass teachers who tickle their ears and take their fancy. While casting away those who don't fit with their preconceived ideas. But the reality is, and the the, the important truth and aspect of this is, that we must always take teaching back to the ultimate authority. Is what I say this morning true in regards and in accordance with God's word? Is what X, Y or Z teacher says true in accordance with God's word? Because that is what matters. That is what is important. Because the reality then becomes, if a preacher does preach from this word, what is in line and what is in accordance with this word, then the very authority of God stands behind what is preached. And therefore it is God's authority that you either submit to or reject to, your, to the peril of your soul. And this is important then. Because if a passage is correctly exposited and it is proclaimed before you, then God's authority stands in those words that are uttered. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. And the word through has the effect of instrumentality. That is that man had no instrumental effect in bringing Paul's apostleship about. No Del Boy behind the scenes was having a conversation here, pulling a few strings there to make Paul an apostle. It was not by human prowess, not by human manoeuvring, politicking, or invention that Paul was made an apostle. That means that no one could undermine him By saying, yeah, well, Paul is only apostle because so-and-so did this or that and made him so. Or, no, he's only an apostle because he's in the in crowd. He knows people. No, they couldn't claim that to undermine him. 
And we only have to go to the world of politics, don't we, to see how our fallen world functions in that regard, how men in the, the halls of Westminster go out of their way to promote themselves, to undermine others, how they'll run people's names through the mud in any way they can to get a foot above their competition or opposition. And Paul here then removes any idea that it is by human effort that he somehow has gained that position of apostle. And so, some points of application from this uh, here, we can say one, that we should be reminded of who Paul was speaking on behalf of. His words that we hear written in this letter are no less than the words of God. Therefore, acknowledging this, we should seek to humble ourselves as we read, as we hear these words proclaimed to us. We ought to seek from Him strength to live in accordance with what this word speaks to us. And we should have our hearts brought to worship Him for all that He has done. Secondly, any position that we have in this life, whether we be the preacher, the pastor, a CEO, an employer, right down to the humble employee working his first shift, be it the cleaner, the warehouse worker, the delivery driver, the doctor, each has been appointed by God to serve faithfully where they are just as Paul was appointed to serve the churches in his position of apostle. And so these, point, these positions have been granted to us by God. And each is important before God. So then, in regards to this, we ought to humble ourselves once more, acknowledging that it is not in our own strength that we have been brought into wherever we find ourselves in life. It is not through our own ingenuity that we have fashioned and made our path to lead us to where we are in whatever position we are in today. It is by God and His shepherding hand that has led us to where we are. Think of Babylon in the Old Testament, for example. Babylon was a small city-state that God raised up dramatically to become a big power And yet Babylon, in its pride and in its arrogance, thought that it was its own power, its own military prowess that had gained its um, land and all the power and prestige that it had at its height. Yet in reality, what happened to them when God had finished using them for his purposes? God disposed of them. And as quickly as Babylon rose to be the superpower... They were gone. So let us remember our ever ongoing need of God. And even when we think we've reached the pinnacle of a career. Or that we have it all in family life. Remember that it is God who placed you there. And in equal measure it is God who keeps you there. So back to our text, we have Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. But if we cast our eyes down to verse 10, we can add one more to that list. For do I now persuade men or God? 
Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. And thirdly, not for the approval of man. Not for the approval of man. What great temptation it comes with any position, with a title or any hint of authority. How tempting is it for fallen men to use that position to draw all men to themselves and have them think, oh, how wonderful you are. How wise you are. What a great guy you are. That is a real temptation with any position. Yet it's not so easy to follow a path that it's been ordained for all Christians to step into a role and a path that says people aren't going to like me. People are going to mock me. They're going to deride me. They are going to attack me. They're going to run my name through the mud as I stand for Christ. And that can be done in whatever position, whatever place you find yourself in, in this world, be it in school, in the workplace, in the home, perhaps. And in those times, we need to remember our Saviour and the path that He trod on our behalf. Christ coming from the glory of heaven to earth. To do what? To serve. To serve. And so then, if you have any authority over others, if you're the prime minister, the boss of a company, a teacher, a classroom ambassador, a husband, a father, a mother, whatever your role is in life, use it to serve others and not yourself. Use it to serve your Lord. And so we've seen what Paul describes his apostleship in the negative, what it's not. It is not from men, it is not through man, and it is not for the approval of man. But then we get to the positive, what it is. It has come through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Having encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was called and sent by God. And so Paul was a sent one of Christ. Therefore, to all who would hear him, including us today, Paul speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. To reject Paul in his role as apostle was to reject the one who sent him. And today, to reject God's word is to reject the one whose word it is. Many in the visible church today think sincerely that they have life in God and fellowship with him. But they hold his word in such contempt, they follow those who seek to systematically dismantle it until it's left in tatters. Yes, they might love the morals, but they deny its author. They might love the ethics contained in God's word, but they hate the unswerving commitment required to Christ's commandments. They claim to know the scriptures, but they do not know God. To mangle the words of God to suit an agenda is to reject him, not to love him. And yet this is the path and the way that many in the visible church are taking today. 
Paul's opening. We shouldn't see in Paul's words his going out of the way to establish his apostleship. We shouldn't see in that Paul trying to save his own face or defend his own honour. We can already see from verse 10 that Paul's not interested in his own prestige or his own name. And so what is he doing? Rather than defending his own honour, Paul in these words is defending the integrity of the gospel that he proclaimed to the Galatians. He's not defending himself, he's defending the gospel. And so to summarise what we have so far, we have one, our Christian message, our Christian lives, are not founded on a message drafted or crafted by men. But it is from God. And therefore with great diligence. And in a most humble way. We ought to submit our lives to that word from God. To seek to live in accord with what is written. Secondly. Just as Paul never gained his position through man. Our livelihoods. Our positions today in the world. And for that matter. Any blessing that we have in life. Not wrought through our own strength. Or our own doing. We must recognise and therefore give thanks to God. For it is his good hand. His good providence. That grants to, to us any blessing that we have. Any position that we have in this life. And like manner we can say it is his good providence. That at times takes those blessings from us. And so then in all those things, once again, we ought to come to God in trust and in hope, knowing that it is his hand that upholds everything that we have in our life. And thirdly, our lives must never be lived in an attempt to gain the approval of man. To do so will inevitably lead to us being unfaithful to God somewhere along the line. We have a message not from men, but from God. We have a gospel brought about not through men, but from Christ Jesus our Lord. And that message that we have conflicts and grates against a rebellious and sinful world. And it provokes in them rejection, malice, anger and all manner of other sinful responses. Yet we must have confidence in our message, in our gospel given by God, that it is the true message, that it is from God. It is imbibed with His authority and therefore we must pray for those who reject it. For they are rejecting God. They are rejecting His Son and the only way of salvation for their souls. Let us then move on to verse 2 then. Just in case we're thinking that Paul here is a lone wolf going at it by himself, we're reminded that there are a whole host of brethren who are with him and are in support of what he writes in this letter. And this is a reminder, my friends, that even the Apostle Paul was just one of many in the service of God. And so ministry is never about one man. It is never about the celebrity pastor on the TV. Rather, ministry is done with much humility and with the prayerful support of God's 
people. And then carrying on in verse 2, we get the formal recipients to the churches or the Gala- uh, to the congregations of Galatia. That is a province in the Roman Empire that day. And if you were to read through Galatians, as we've already noted, you're going to encounter a number of problems that exist within these churches. Verse 3, Paul then begins with his common salutation. Grace to you. That is God's unmerited favour, his loving kindness towards all those who are in Christ. And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace then is an expression of the desire for a wholeness and a wellness with those who are listening. We are made up of multiple parts, aren't we? Like a wall is made up of many bricks, we have our souls, we have our minds, our emotions, our physical beings. And peace is the desire that all those component parts that come together to make us who we are, are well and whole. And then we move on and see Paul's inclusive language where he builds a bond between him and the churches in Galatia that they are united and we see this in the language of inclusivity for example grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father And so Paul is, in this language, uniting himself and his readers. He is saying, we are united in this common bond of the gospel. That we are in Christ together. We are brothers and sisters together. So let us be united. That we are together those who ought to have perished under God's wrath because of our sinfulness. We are those who were once held captive to this present evil age. Yet we are now united in Christ because of the gospel and what Christ has done. And so that is true of us today, brothers and sisters. We are united under Christ's lordship. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we have a risen and ascended Lord that died and saved us from our sins. And so Paul goes on to say that Jesus Christ was given for our sins that he might deliver us. Now the most common use of that word perhaps today is deliver a parcel, a package. We get letters all day through our letterbox we have at the Amazon man perhaps coming to our door regularly delivering a package. Now I don't know where those packages have come from, but they're probably not in peril or in jeopardy. The word deliver here is signalling that we are being saved from something. That someone or something is in danger. And so when we are being delivered from danger, the, the thought behind this is, and it's a simple thought we are familiar with, that we who were born in sin and rebellion to God our maker were in mortal peril because the wages 
of our sin demanded death. And that is a cost that we could not buy ourselves out of. And so it would have cost us our lives, our eternal state. Our state before being saved by God's grace was one of deception and captivity. We were deceived as to the state of our souls. Those who do not know their need, are in de- uh, they are deceived. They're in danger, but they do not know it. We were blinded to the glory and the right knowledge of God. It is through the gospel proclamation and God's scripture alone that we are given a right understanding of God. There are many people in the world who think they have an understanding of God. We can see it in the pagan religions and some of the other religions, but particularly in the Far East, they have a sense of God from creation. And creation does point to God, but it does not give us a clear, true picture of God. The true revelation of God in all his wonder and all his glory comes from God, uh, from God's word. And then, through the lens of God's word, we then can look to creation and see our true God. And so we were blind to the knowledge of God. We were in captivity to our flesh, to its lusts and its desires that are bent away from God's perfect law. We were captive to the world with all its distractions and all of its pressures. And we were in captive to the devil and the powers of spiritual darkness which blinded us from our need of God and his glory. That was our state. And that is the state of all who have not yet come to Christ. They are bound by this present evil age. And yet this is the very thing that Paul says we as Christians, as God's people, have been delivered from. To speak of a present evil age perhaps evokes the hope of a future age to come. One perhaps that we as Christians take for granted too often. But when it was written, this letter, in the time of the Roman Empire, they were living in what was then seen as a golden age. They wouldn't have said that their time was evil. They'd never known it so well. They've had peace and prosperity within the borders of the Roman Empire. They knew blessing in that sense. And maybe like them, we too in our world know blessing. And we can easily be lulled into the comforts of this life. We have so much to enjoy to distract ourselves with. And when we're so consumed in our bubble of comfort, do we often think of this as an evil age? Perhaps we forget that this is not our true home when so often it feels like it is. But the reality is, Christian, that we are bound for another place, a true home, One where there will be no sin, there will be no suffering, that we will dwell with and know perfectly our Lord and our God. We are merely passers-on through in this world. And it was a long-held view in Judaism at 
Paul's time of writing that the whole of history will be marked by two ages. The first age which they lived in was marked by chaos, sin, rebellion, suffering, death, unrighteousness. And then at one point in history, in time, their view is that God would break through and usher in a new age. He would establish righteousness. Sin would no longer be in that world. Suffering, death would be no longer part of it. And the Christian hope is similar. Yet we see an exception that right now we have a convergence of those two ages. We live in a time where Christ has ushered in his kingdom. He has brought in his righteousness. He has conquered sin and the sting of death. But yet we still live in an age where we see the effects of sin, don't we? We still know what it is to suffer. We still suffer bereavement and loss. Yet in Paul's writing we see that Paul perceives an age-shifting event in Jesus' life and death. And so here he can speak of being delivered from the present evil age. And then, Christian, this is the effect of the gospel that you are believing in now. That you have been delivered from the power of darkness. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Christ. You are a new creation. God has shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have been enlightened to the gospel. You have set your faith in Christ. And therefore, you shall not taste eternal death, but rather you will know eternal life. And you are partakers of this life now. You can know him now. Yes, we must make our way through this pilgrimage like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And we will still taste sorrow. We will still know pain and grief. The victory is ours in Christ. And the gospel invitation is to enter into this life that God is extending to a lost and dying world. The invitation is to submit to the authority of Christ whose burden is light. His grace, his mercy has provided a way for us to escape from this present evil age. To escape the fate of all unbelief. And to dwell with him in righteousness. And so, my friends, as we close, let us take this away. We have a message not from man. Not crafted by the mind of men, but from God. We have a message of hope and of life. And as you progress through Galatians, you will see that this message is the utmost of importance to defend and keep in its purity. And so the, the challenge is, shall we save our own face? Shall we let the gospel be mocked in our own day and in our own lives? Shall we uphold our own pride and self-esteem, letting the gospel fall into disrepute? Surely not. The lesson from this morning is that God's authority is behind these words. We are not offering the world just another opinion. We are not offering the world just another way of salvation. 
We are offering the world the only way of salvation. We are offering the world God's authoritative invitation to know him, to be reconciled to him. We live in a pluralistic age of many paths and many ways, but the Bible says there is only one way, that Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. And therefore, in service to God and not ourselves, let the messenger be mocked, scorned, maligned. But let the message be held in all its truth and glory. Because all of it, as we can see in verse 5, as we close, is for the one to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.